Broadcasting live from the Pro Business Channel studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Capital Club Radio. Brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance. Please welcome your host, Chairman and CEO, Michael Flock. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Capital Club Radio. We are delighted today to have one of our most distinguished investors of Flock, Tom Frick. Tom is a successful CEO and leader in business and also his personal life. He's got a very engaging story about how he's developed this kind of philosophy of balanced leadership. And he did that through, you know, several years in some very important companies like HMS Host, where he was CEO. It's a North American market leader in airport and turnpike concessions, revenues of $2.5 billion. He was also CEO of Cartridge World, the largest retailer of remanufactured and refilled ink cartridges. He was also VP of Asset Protection at Home Depot and Chief Administrative Officer at Giant Eagle and held multiple senior positions at Pepsi. Recently, he's transitioned from kind of the pure corporate world to one of advising. He has a company now called Frick Consulting, and he is currently working with Morgan Stanley Private Equity on acquisitions and food services. He's also a strategic advisor to the board of a spa and wellness center company, and now also working closely with an e-commerce business platform that is entering a new vertical. Tom is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and also obtained his MBA from Stanford University. So, Tom, tell me about with all these interesting experiences you've had, you know, from the Navy to corporate and now as an entrepreneur and a consultant to some, you know, startup companies. How did you develop this theory or this philosophy of balanced leadership? Uh, well, first of all, it's great to be here, Michael. So thank you for that the great introduction. Um you know, it. Uh, I guess a couple ways. Number one, um, you know, when you're in turnaround roles, you tend to um, get forced into the leadership crucible relatively quickly. And in my case, it started early. When you go to the Naval Academy, that is a big part of your education, um, is trying to understand leadership and what it means and how you do it. Um, because it is, while, while some people are born with innate skills, it is something that you can learn. It is a competency that you can develop. Um, and then in, 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 so, so certainly there was personal experiences. And then as well, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big reader. I love to read. I typically read nonfiction. Um, I, for a whole lot of reasons, mm-hmm. have done a lot of military, read, read a lot on sort of, you know, sort of military history, um, as, as well as business history. And, and it's really the observations you get from, you know, going through and, and, following or, or understanding people like Patton or Churchill or right. Lee or, um, and you start, I guess, you know, in, at least in my case, I started building this framework or this model for what made them great and made them the leaders that they were. Now, when you think of Churchill, Patton and Lee, I don't know if balanced comes to, well, I think Lee comes to my mind. Those guys were really driven. And Lee was probably the most balanced of any of them. And and I, you know, and I think, you know, certainly the perspective of Lee was that he was right. Pretty unique in terms of who he was and and his character. Um, um, But I I think in in all cases, you know, you, you see, uh, and that's, you know, one of the challenges you have in the model is, and, and, you know, just sort of jump ahead, sort of philosophically, I think the really, the, the true great leaders 
try to maintain balance along key competencies or or, or key characteristics of their personality. Um, you know, whether they're strategic or analytic, mm-hmm. whether they're mm-hmm. humble or whether they're right. you know they're they're um, uh, or competent versus humble, and you know all those. There's about nine or ten of them right. that, that sort of I have. Um, and and you know part of the challenge is your personality typically isn't balanced. And, and exactly. I think, yeah. you know, and, and if you look at, um, if you read a lot about Lee, he apparently had a ferocious temper, uh-huh. but he didn't demonstrate it. Right. It was rare. You right. know, and he sort of kept it in check so that when mm-hmm. outwardly people thought he was, this is a great guy, but there's mm-hmm. instances where he gets alone or he gets mm-hmm. with AIDS right. where nobody's around and right. you sort of see it. And that's, you know, one of the challenges yep. is your personality is not balanced. You have things you like to do, don't like to do. And I think to be an effective leader, you've got to understand your challenges and work to over to mm-hmm. compensate them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it's hard to think of Churchill all the time as balanced because he had a pretty volatile temper and I think Patton did. And, but he uh, also had a wonderful sense of humor. Right. Okay. So that maybe that was the balance. You know what thing. I mean? And yeah. so there, there were times where you, you know, he, he sort of, in some ways he was balanced because he did have a temper, but he also had this wonderful sense of humor and right. could diffuse difficult right. situations sometimes with humor. Right. Um, but yeah, but yeah, I mean, to find some leader who's perfectly balanced, I think is hard. None of us are perfectly balanced. Well, right. And it's a question yeah. of how you, how you deal with That's it. That's right. Now you started, uh, kind of learning about leadership, I think, at the Naval Academy. Mm-hmm. What were some of the lessons there that you learned? Such a great honor to get in. Um, you know, what what inspired you to do that? And what did you learn from that experience? Well, yeah, you know, um, my earliest memory was telling my parents that's where I was going to go to school. So uh, I, I don't, okay, you know, and it's not, we don't, we didn't have a family history of it. We didn't, I mean, it just is what I wanted to do. I, nobody really knows why. Um, it was almost a, it was almost imprinted at birth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very fortunate to have that opportunity to go through. Um, you know, one of the things that we learned there um, is to be an effective leader, you got to start at the bottom and you got to understand what it's like at all levels in the organization. I think right. people forget that. Yeah. Um, and so that was one of the most interesting and one of the reasons you go through plebe year and at the end of plebe year you go out into the fleet as the lowest level enlisted person Mm -hmm. um and you know you do the really really meaning uh, menial tasks on the ship um and it's important to remember yeah and um one of the things to be the plebe i'm sorry was it difficult for you to be the plebe when you first started and um it's difficult if you don't want to be there (laughs) Yeah. No, seriously. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's yeah. it's a it's a it's the kind of place where if you want to be there, you understand that's part of the education. You just do gotcha. it. Um, and you know, when I was at Free to Lay, actually, um, my, when I left consulting, I went to work at Free to Lay, and part of the training program b- before I became uh, an area vice president was, uh, you know, I, I literally started by making promotional deliveries over Christmas in a route truck, mm-hmm. and then had my own route. And then they and Free to Lay was terrific about that. And so uh-huh. I had a route for a period of time. I had a okay, district, so for, that's and when you, you work your way up, stage. right? And you work your way up. And yeah. you know, it, one of the things that I've seen because I have been fortunate and blessed to do a bunch of turnarounds, which are you know very difficult, is um, companies that struggle and certainly my experience was the senior team didn't really understand the business. I mean, mm-hmm. really understand the business because 
there's this arrogance sometimes that we think we can manage something mm-hmm. and not really understand the processes behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, for me, I have always, you know, for example, at HMS Host, we ran 350 right. Starbucks. Right. Um, I became a barista because you're, you're doing $500 million worth of business. Uh-huh. Um, it's kind of important to understand how it works. And, and you don't understand it until you start at the bottom, you're saying. You right. Start at the I mean, bottom. really understand it. Yeah. I used to work in plants. I used right. to pack boxes when I was at Frito-Lay. Right. Um, because it really helps you understand. It does two things, right? Number one is it it really helps you understand the business. So hopefully you make better and wiser decisions because you understand um, the entire process. And then the other thing is it sends a really important signal to the organization. Mm-hmm. You know, that you've done it. That you've done it and that it's important enough for you to learn it, right? And so I, it was a, I, I made it very visible that I was going to become a barista. It's, it was a very important signal for me to send because when you're doing half a billion dollars in coffee sales right. and people don't understand it, it, it you, know, you, you, you can have performance issues as a result. So I guess then there are maybe two lessons here. One is you got to start at the bottom to learn the process. And at the same time, it sets the example in the future as a leader because you're doing what you expect the people to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the, one of the things that you, you certainly, I, I've always found is, um, you, you, first of all, your organization will reflect your personality. Yep. Right. Yeah. Um, and if you're quick tempered, you're going to tend to have, you know, a quick tempered organization. If you're, um, you know, if you don't take care of your people, they are not going to take care of your customers. customers right. right. I mean, that's a right. pretty basic thing. People tend to forget that, right. which is one of the reasons I started thinking about balanced, right? If you want a balanced organization, mm-hmm. then you need to be balanced because if you're at the extremes, your organization is going to be at those same extremes right. over, over time. Right. Um, so you got to create a culture to do that is what you're saying then. Right. Yeah. And the, and the, the culture will be a, pretty close reflection of your personality and your style. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I think it's pretty important mm-hmm. to sort of maintain that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get what you talk about mm-hmm. and you get what you model. So if if you go to the organization and say, you know, this particular product line is important, but right. I don't understand it. I don't know how it's made. I don't, you know, it it's it actually sends the reverse signal that in fact it's not important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At HMS Host, one of the challenges we had was, you know, when I came on board, um, uh, food quality wasn't a focus. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I went out on my first couple market tours, we spent all of our time in the customer section. Nobody went back in the kitchens, and that sends a signal to the cooking staff that food quality is not that important because you're not going back into the kitchens. Um, and so we made a point that whenever we did market tours, there was going to be a period of time during that tour where you went back into the kitchens, you interacted with the chefs, you right. looked at the, you know, right. the, and, you know, you, you sampled the food, you did different things. And it sent a completely different signal to the organization now mm-hmm. that we were focused against food mm-hmm. quality and that we were worried about sort of the, you know, and so little subtle things, but, you know, you've got to sort of, you know, and again, go back to balance. They were 100% customer focused when we first, when I first got there. 
we started to spend equal time. I wanted to, you know, it was as important for me to go see the kitchen right. as it was to right. see where the, you know, the right. customers. So did you, as a result of that, have new metrics too, measuring things yeah, we they cr- didn't we, measure before? We created new metrics. And it, and, and again, it's, it's also a challenge for, cause I'd never been in restaurants before. Right. You know, and, um, so what we actually did was I went to the chefs and I said, you know, tell me the 10 questions I need to ask right. so people will think I grew up in the kitchens. Right. And I, you know, I mean, I memorized them. And I still remember, I think right. I could still probably give you eight of the 10, even though I'd never really worked in kitchens before. Right. Because when you do that, you got to be right. sincere. And, right. you know, and the right. quickest way to be sincere and the is- the same as if you were a barista, I guess, for the coffee. Right. You couldn't right. go in and talk to a barista about product quality if you didn't understand their job. Right. You just, you just couldn't do it. Right. And they would see it as an insincere effort because you hadn't gone to the trouble to learn mm-hmm. sort of what they do. Now, what about some of the other companies where you, you did turnarounds, like Cartridge Worlds? Did same what were the I, lessons there? And, well, I mean, my my style has always been the same. I you know, I think when you go into a situation like that, um, I learned how to refill donor cartridges and ink cartridges. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and again, I think people when I was in the you know I was in a fighter squadron for three years as a support person. On, I was a naval intelligence officer. I thought it was really important. There was this thing they did called um, uh, NATOPS, which was their emergency procedures. Mm-hmm. And they would have a quiz on, you know, the, the the different steps they had to do inside the cockpit when there were different emergencies. Um, and so I got backseat qualified and I took the tests with them. Um, and I had a, I had the procedures memorized. Uh-huh. I didn't have the first clue what any of it meant, but I had the procedures memorized. And they got the biggest kick in the world out of that. And actually, I had, I think, the highest average at one point in the squadron. Okay. I had no idea where circuit 5A3 was, but I knew that if we were in a flat spin, I had to make sure that that circuit was, you know, functional. Right. So, it was, you know, it's just little things like that. I think it's really important that um, you, you really understand the business you're in and, you know, focus against it. Now, you also were in the grocery business at John yeah. Eagle. What were some of those uh, lessons there that apply to balanced leadership? Um, well, you know, they, the, the, um, uh, the challenge John Eagle had when I joined was Walmart supercenters were coming in. And it was, it mm-hmm. was, you know, that was in the early 2000s. And at that point, everybody right. thought that the scale of the Walmart supercenter businesses would, I mean, if you remember, if you right. can think back that far, everybody thought, Walmart supercenters were going to destroy the grocery channel and traditional mm-hmm. grocers were going to go away. And, and so philosophically, I felt that a well-run regional mm-hmm. um, competitor that could mm-hmm. flex its product portfolio mm-hmm. and do some things unique to the region could mm-hmm. compete. Mm-hmm. And so it was a chance to go in there and, and sort of test those theories, um, you know, in terms of, um, uh, you know, could you get Giant Eagle in a position where, right. it, where it could compete? Um, and, you, you know, there was that was a situation where I think the the senior team there was just sort of overwhelmed with the idea of going up against Walmart, mm-hmm. um, and um, you know the the chairman that was there at the was probably the the best merchant I'd ever been around, but had some operational shortcomings, you know, and it was really around coming in and shoring up the operations to sort of support his um, the strengths he had on the merchandising side. Um, and so, you know, and, and again, that was the case where, um, I think he did 
something. He brought in people who understood operations, I think, a little bit better than he did. And and again, it's that. Mm-hmm. Remember, as, as I was saying before, we are who we are, and we have areas where we we are stronger or have biases. Um, right. You know, and in his case, he was very strategic. It was very merchant oriented. He wasn't as operationally focused, so he was bringing people in to help him. Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes you can right. You can be balanced. Sometimes you achieve balance by bringing in people to help you. So that you. affects your organizational development. Right. So I the organization is balanced because right. I may not be the greatest operator, but uh-huh. I'm going to hire somebody in who can come in and help me from an operations perspective. Right. So, so the organization brings balance to so you sometimes based you balance. on your history and Correct. your skill set. Correct. Sometimes you can provide that balance. Sometimes you need to bring in people to help you provide that balance. Right. Right. Now, in all these... Uh, companies or divisions that you've run. I mean, you've got this stellar resume, but it it wasn't all easy. What were some of the obstacles that you encountered when you were in each one of these companies? You had to manage change. That had to be difficult. Give our listeners some examples of some of the adverse uh, uh, situations you found yourself in. And how did you deal with that? And how did that maybe apply to your balanced leadership model? Yeah, well, um, most of my assignments or the roles that I've taken have been either turnarounds or businesses that may have been profitable but needed a pretty significant change in in performance trajectory. Um, and so they've all they've all had their adversities, right? And and I think one of the you know one of the things you learn as you get older is life is full of adversity, and you always have adversity. It's a question of you know sort of the degree and how you deal with it. Um, my first turnaround was actually in Puerto Rico where the bulk of the workforce spoke Spanish and I didn't. Okay. So I went down there, <laughs> I went down there without speaking any, la- any of the language at all. Um, and part of my day started with Berlitz, Berlitz training as I tried to get at least somewhat competent. Um, although admittedly that was a bit of a fail. Um, I got to the point where I could read, but like our written history was all in Spanish. Um, and so, um, you know, when you go in a situation like that, you, 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 it adds a degree of complexity to it because when you go into a business that's struggling or you're, you know, mm-hmm. you're going into a situation, you're trying to understand, is it a problem with the business system? Is it a problem with the business culture? Uh-huh. And in some cases, then you also had to determine, is it a right. problem with the culture cult, you know, the, right. the culture of the local market? Right. Um, and so, and then my second turnaround was in Australia. So mm-hmm. at least the language was, you know, right. sim- similar, um, right. but you still had those cultural things that you had to, you know, you know, you had to go through. So it, it added complexity to it. Um, and you, you know, you just had to find your ways around it. When, when we came through the U S system at Free to lay, it was an incredibly well metriced business, right? I mean, you had sort of, you had, uh, um, you had uh, data for just about mm-hmm. everything, and you mm-hmm. were you, the approach tended to be va- very analytical because right. you had all this data to support decision making. When you go to Puerto Rico, there was none, mm-hmm. um, and so you know, literally, what we used to do for market share was I would take my senior staff and the marketing people to the playgrounds after school recess, and you would look at what was in the waste cans and what was on the ground because uh-huh. you could see what kids were consuming. Right. So you have to get creative, Mm -hmm. you know, um, at host, um, you know, we ended up creating a new metric. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was a metric that kind of existed, but nobody was paying attention to, uh, it was, it was basically a way to calculate a market share for, uh, uh, the, the, it was the percent of people coming through a terminal that were purchasing from us. Okay. 
as opposed to, you know, not purchasing or, mm-hmm. um, you know, and obviously the goal was to try and get 100% of the people buying something on their mm-hmm. way to the gate. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it was a different way to look at the business. Um, hosts tended to see themselves as a, um, uh, see their cap, their customers captive, and there is no worse right. thing for a business to do than to view its customers being captive. And, you know, we had some very early, early on, we had some philosophical discussions around you know they're they're captive to the airport terminal if they want to get on an airplane but they are not captive to the dining experience right in any way shape or form and mm-hmm. so by creating that metric it allowed us to focus on different things because mm-hmm. when you think your customer's captive food quality as i said before food quality you know some of these things don't matter because right. they're, they're captive right right um uh, but by focusing instead on the percentage of people coming through all of a sudden mm-hmm. You had to think about your business differently, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. and it it allowed us to focus on more consumer-driven activity, mm-hmm. um, which made a big difference for the business. So, so changing metrics, I guess you're saying, is one way that a leader can change the organization's focus and, yeah. and processes. But what else culturally? Because I know in my own situation at Dunham Bradstreet and earlier at AT&T, that when I was trying to change a division or a company, there was sometimes a lot of inertia, yeah. organizational inertia, because people are so set in their ways. They've done it the same way for years, and you're the new leader coming in. You haven't had the bottom of experience necessarily that they have. They think they know more than you. Right. And, you know, how do you, how, how do you incite and incent and drive that change? Well, I, you know, we were talking a little bit about before the show, um, you, I, I always, you know, and, and certainly what I learned, and I, look, I was I was blessed. I, w- I worked at Pepsi under two or three just uh-huh. absolutely phenomenal chair people. Um, actually, I've known the last four and I had a chance to work very closely with um, three of the four. Well, actually, all the four. But, um, you know, what I would do is <clears throat> we always tried to develop themes. Mm-hmm. And it would be the strategies that you were going to employ. Um, and to show you how powerful it is, I joined Frito-Lay right after Roger and Rico had gone in. Frito-Lay had been right. going through years of decline. Uh-huh. He, he did the first ever layoff and restructuring of the business. And he came up with four things that the business was going to focus on. Mm-hmm. It was going to take back the streets, which was around, you know, how do we drive market share and get volume going back, uh, going back again? We were going to make quality a reality. So the money that he took mm-hmm. – um, out of the system through those layoffs in part was going to be reinvested in getting the quality so that it was un, you know, unsurpassed. It was going to be find a better way, which is all about productivity, you know, and how you were going to continue to look for ways to get costs out of the system so you can continue to invest in sales mm-hmm. initiatives and quality and win together, which was your, this is 30 years ago. And I still remember those four things. Right. Wow. You know, and I, and I still refer to those. And so we would, we would always sort of have those two or three key themes. You try to do it in a memorable Mm -hmm. way Mm -hmm. in a, you know, in a clever way so that people can really gravitate behind Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. Um, And then for me, there is nothing that's more powerful than being visible as the leader of the organization. Mm -hmm. And not just being visible, but then, you know, making sure that when you're out, you're talking about the key philosophy, strategies, and whatever you want to call them. Roger called them the imperatives, the four imperatives. Right, right. And you just, 
you know, so you're it's constantly visible. It's I mean, the four imperatives, that's, that's also an element of communication, how you communicate correct. that to your organization and you institutionalize it. Correct. Right. Correct. And it's how you motivate the people. You know, I have my little things in in Australia. We had 2,000 employees. I sent everybody a birthday card because uh-huh. I wanted them to feel like they were part of, you know, the broader organization. Right. And, you know, it's it, it, it when we were in Puerto Rico, we created a thing called the President's Club, mm-hmm. um, and we gave them a certificate and a shirt and a letter mm-hmm. from me. And it was, you know, that we, we right. broke the organization up. And then once a year, you'd have the club get together. And but you created, and you know, in the in the Latin culture, family is a big deal. So we made the right. company a family. Right. Right. We, we made it a family, and we we tried to align the family on key themes and principles, and we tried to play up on that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, I'm a big letter writer. Mm-hmm. You know, I, when I do market tours, I would always, when I came back, write a real letter or an email. Oh, no, real letter. So that's just an email. Okay. No, I'd get the names of key people okay. that we met, and yeah. and you know, and and again, this is where one one of the lessons that you know I have these crazy things. I always tell the junior, you know, like my new executives that are coming up. You don't understand the impact you have on your employees. I guarantee everybody underestimates the impact that they have on their employees. Right. And that, and that, that's what I was saying before. And it's one of the reasons balanced came up. Mm-hmm. If you are visibly angry, you are, your group, it will affect the morale of your group. Mm-hmm. If you're, if you react quickly, you know, if you're quick to temper, mm-hmm. people will be afraid to tell you stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so you've got to really be sort of, and, and, uh, you know, I, I think people underestimate, all leaders have a tendency to underestimate the subtle, the subtle, you know, how much of an impact they have on people and how little subtle mm-hmm. facial expressions, mm-hmm. you know, how, you know, can impact right. their day right, and their, 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 their approach on business. Uh-huh. And so, you know, the story I like to tell, I was... We were doing a market tour on the motorways and we stopped at a rest stop in Delaware. And there was, you know, this woman had been working for us for, you know, I don't know, 35 years, long time. And she was the chicken breader at Popeye's. And so I took 15 minutes and I said, I want you to teach me how to bread chicken. Right. Now, it's, I did that not necessarily because I didn't know how to bread chicken, but it was more around recognizing this long-term employee who was sort of the right. character of the workforce. Right. And, um, she was very proud to show me sort of how, you know, to bread chicken at Popeye's. And I sent her a thank you note when I got back. And we talked a little bit about the business and you kind of reflect on a couple of the suggestions or things you talked about. So like a year later, I'm coming back to the same rest stop and I actually have a journalist from Italy with me who's coming in to, you know, tour things. And when we pulled in, that woman was waiting for me. Mm-hmm. Um outside the rest stop and she came up and she's you know grabbed me she had tears in her eyes and she gave me this big hug and she said i couldn't believe that you sent me this letter and i was telling my church group how the ceo had sent this letter to me um, and they didn't believe it and so i took it off the wall so she actually had my letter framed and it was in her house to take it into people mm-hmm. now you know, it, 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 you know, I mean, I wish I had spent more time thinking about the letter, right, you know, right. at, now, but it shows you the impact it has on people uh-huh. just uh-huh. recognizing them for what they do for the business, you know, um, 
And, you know, to this day, if I show up, Mr. Regina is probably going to be waiting for me um, because, you know, the simple little gesture of sending them a thank you note, um, thanking them for 35 years of service, talking about some of the things that we talked about that might make quality better or, you know, help drive some costs down. So and, part of driving change then is that personal touch, that oh, personal absolutely. communication that becomes kind of institutionalized in the culture that you've created right. as you try to put in place, let's say, a new business model or right. a new product or a new process. Yeah, sure. Because, you know, as you're coming in and you're changing and you've got these initiatives that you're driving that, you know, you believe are going to drive change, mm-hmm. right? Number one, you want honest feedback because sometimes you get it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, you know, I mean, every turnaround I've ever been successful in is ultimately turned around for because of initiatives that I did not envision when I got there. Right. Well, that's interesting. There were surprises. Yeah. Yeah. You go in with this framework. Give us an example. Um, well, when we went into, um, you know, Puerto Rico, uh-huh. um, I was told that the challenge was that they had gone away. They used to do bag inserts for the kids, like, you know, like the old Cracker Jack where you had the toy right. inside. Right. And they had discontinued it for cost reasons. And I was told that, you know, if you just put those inserts back in, everything will be fine. Well, it turned out that the whole value proposition was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and it required a whole lot of work because you had a, a, the, I mean, just they were treating Puerto Rico like it was a tourist market and 80% of the consumption was actually local. Um, and pricing was a hell of a lot more relevant um, for, you know, in, in local markets um, than it is in a tourist market. And so you were, your entire price structure was wrong. Um, and so you had to go find you know, and restructure overhead to mm-hmm. fund a pretty substantial mm-hmm. price reductions to get yourself. In. And so, I mean, it was a, it was a, right. it was a completely different. Right. So we went in with this, oh, we're just going to drop some inserts in the bag and it would be fine. And we ended up having to do major restructuring of the overhead structure. We had to get mm-hmm. price points different. We had to do a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Never was contemplated when we got there. Mm-hmm. Um, in Australia, uh, the, 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 typical business model for free to lay was go into a market leader buy you know go in buy the market leader and then bring in your global brands like free to lay and right. or like lays potato chips and cheetos right. um and that's what they had ultimately done in australia and it was mm-hmm. failing and you know the the big insight that took me two years to figure out because sometimes right you're right. not as quick as you'd like to think is yep. in the australian market you know i used to joke that it supported two and a half brands mm-hmm. so you had a market leader you had a number two, mm-hmm. and the, the trade there concentration was really high. So the trade sort of managed mm-hmm. who won and who came in second. And mm-hmm. then there was a third brand that kept rotating through because it would go bankrupt and bring a new one in. Right. Because they sort of managed it in the third. And Lays and Cheetos were like our sixth, seventh, and eighth, or seventh and eighth right. um, largest brands. So right. we were absolutely nowhere. Yeah. Um, and so at one point, I, I don't know if it's still the case, but I was the only general manager in the history of Frito-Lay to take the global brands out of the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we discontinued trying to push Lay's and we went back to the original brands. Wow, that's a radical change. It was very radical. Yeah. And I was fortunate to have a boss that supported it because uh-huh. you can imagine going into corporate right. and sitting down with the going chairman the saying past. the big idea is to take our corporate brands out. Right. Um, and right. f- fortunately, it worked. So uh-huh. fortunately, I had a boss that supported it. And, uh-huh. But it took us two and a half years to figure that out. Uh-huh. You know, And that was never ever contemplated when I went in. It took two and a half years because you weren't successful. Well, because we were, well, no, we went in with this, here's the playbook and here's what we're going to execute. And we, Mm -hmm. you know, tried and tried and tried and tried and we're getting nowhere. And then one day we said, geez, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe it's So essentially you embraced adversity by going back to 
where Frito Lay was. Yeah, and you think outside oh. the box, right? I mean, right. it was it was right. it it was the reverse of what had worked around the world, um, and so um, you know, it was uh, it was a it took us a while to sort of figure that one out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think you go in with preset conditions um, mm-hmm. and or preset ideas of what's going to work, and you have to, you know, and and again, balance is. You know, part of the balance is you have to be patient because sometimes strategies take time. Um, you know, Murphy works in corporate America, so usually what you try first doesn't work, right? Because it's Murphy's right. law. And, and patience wasn't exactly a strength of Churchill, Patton, or Lee, I don't think. Maybe with Lee, but I don't think well, I don't know. Churchill were very patient. Well, yeah, but he also fought a war for eight years. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, yeah. you're yes and no. Mm-hmm. You know, yes and no. And that's where you have these biases. And, and part of the balance is you, you roll these plans out. And when they first don't work, is it because mm-hmm. the plan's wrong? Is it because you didn't execute appropriately? And so you're right. constantly trying to decide right. when, when do I give up on this initiative? Right. Right. You know, when, when, and, and how do I know when it's time to go to something else? Yep. And, you know, in the case of the Australia situation, it took us two and a half years to figure out we were going down the wrong mm-hmm. path or two years. And, right. you know, we, plugged along on it at some point patience can be a liability oh absolutely yeah i mean you want to persevere up to a point uh, correct and that's what i mean you're constantly struggling with right have i given this the time to work versus Mm -hmm. am i ending it prematurely Mm -hmm. right and Mm -hmm. where where am i on that spectrum do i need to ride it more do i need to modify it you know is it and that's a right you know i mean you always struggle with that you always struggle with that. So, Tom, as we wrap this up today, um, you know, I've got the matrix here or the diagram of leadership characteristics that you shared with us earlier. Um, how can you prioritize these? You've got like eight of them, strategic, analytic, confident, directive, innovative, aggressive, long-term, patient, encouraging, emotional. And uh, h- how do you prioritize these? And how are you also using this model with your current new consulting business, you know, the work you're you, you're doing with Morgan Stanley and also mm-hmm. the Spa and Wellness Center and now this e-commerce company. Yeah. Um, how do you prioritize and can you give our listeners some final examples of maybe how you're applying this to your current consulting yeah, business? Yeah, I, I think the, the, you know, how you prioritize it, I think, is a function of the issues that you face. Okay. Um, you know, so for example, you know, are you, do you, do you gravitate, should you gravitate towards strategic issues or tactical issues? I think some of that's going to be, you know, and when corporate's coming in, you got your three year st- strategic plan coming up. You tend to live in the strategic side of the business because right. the, the realities of sort of the business dictate that that's what you need to do. Um, and, and, um, so some of it for me is a function. It, I mean, and that is one of the challenges is to understand the issue mm-hmm. you're facing, mm-hmm. you know, um, patient versus impatient. Uh, you know, that's a tough one that, tell you well, know, right. you're, yeah, you're looking at an initiative and it's not working and you kind of have to you know sometimes it's intuitive sometimes you have to look at it and say do i give this more time do i you know is it well, time right, to- sometimes you maybe balance isn't always the answer is it i mean no balance you don't want to be patient no no i think what know, happens the house is, is on fire well that's know? what i mean i i think you know and we didn't really get to you know fully talk about it but i think to me there are times where you are you have to be imbalanced Right. I mean, there are times where, you know, if, if, um, you know, uh, um, you look at short term versus long term, if mm-hmm. you go in and you can't make payroll or your, you know, your cash flow forecaster saying, I got, you got to be impatient. You got, you got to, right. you got to do exactly. things right now right. in order to make the situation. And so right. to me, the challenge is how do you, how do you, how do you know when you leave the balanced position? Right. 
Right. How do you know in which direction you go? Right. And then more importantly, how to get yourself back again. Uh huh. Right. Because when you're facing tactical issues, you see a lot of businesses that fail because there's a strategic problem, but the CEO is sort of wrapped up in tactical issues. Right. And misses the big picture. Right. Right. You see, you see businesses that struggle because the CEO is very strategic and doesn't understand mm-hmm. that on the, on the, you know, at, at the, plant level they got a problem right you know and i mean it's and it's constantly how do you go back and forth and the challenge that you've got to look at and develop and the skills you got to develop are twofold it's the business situation that you're in is always going to knock you out of balance Mm -hmm. it's always you know you're you're always going in one direction or another and in any one of these attributes and so the you know the question is how do you get yourself back again and then how do you compensate for your personal biases which also sort of tend to knock you off balance right 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 and so um you know i tend to be i i used to always say you know to people the greatest acting challenge in the world is to be a ceo Mm -hmm. because you know there'll be times where you're scared to death Uh uh-huh but you can't let people see that right you know there are and and i used to tell people you know one of the common gripes that you see in executive teams is the budget's too hard you know this crazy budget yeah i used to tell people you will never know ever my true belief of that budget <laughs> right because you just can't you can't do that you can't well, you have to be authentic though right you have to be authentic but but you have to be in th- authentic in terms of your leadership and style you know but there's certain things you don't want to be because mm-hmm. the minute you go into your senior team and go ah oh, this you know this budget next year <laughs> yeah right you just sent the signal to the organization right. that you know, right. you can't make it right. And, and, you know, I had, I had, I, I've been blessed with great people that have always worked with me and, and for me. And, and, uh, you know, I was learning the sales system at free delay. And, you know, one of the, one of the, they called it the doc disease. This guy called it the doc disease. If you go onto a free delay route truck and ask the guy how the business is going that mm-hmm. week mm-hmm. or that month, and free delay was just an incredible machine, you know, in terms of performance delivery. They would always tell you it's slow. Yep. Ninety-five percent of the time, they'd go, "Oh yeah, it's slow." If you said, "Oh, that's too bad," you know, or maybe it'll pick up next week, you've just sent a signal to the guy mm-hmm. that it's okay to it's have okay. a bad week. Right. And and he used to he was you know phenomenal at well you know I was down to talk to three other guys and they're having a good week and have you done this and you've got Kroger have you done the specials and that's Kroger, right. you know and and so. Uh, you, you have to be authentic in terms of who you are, but mm-hmm. there are some things you can lie about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would, I would never, I would never tell them whether I thought the only thing they ever heard from me was we were going to hit budget, right? Period. We right. were going to deliver it. Yeah. And I was authentic sometimes in terms. I would say I don't know how. Uh huh. Yet. Right. But we're going to get, get there. there. Um, and so I, you know, you know, I think that's part of you know. So when you when you've got personal things you've got to figure out how you overcome them publicly and you know you've got to find your ways to vent or you know go sort of you know express your concern do your thing but um you know you you you've always i the the great people i've always worked for you know sort of were balanced had that balance and that's where it came from you know they were demanding but they could be patient in other ways they were they'd get angry but then they would be you know incredibly patient they'd be strategic but then wouldn't be afraid to go out in the plant and get Mm -hmm. tactical you know, and really understand it. And it was, it was that, it's that ability of moving around the spectrum and, you know, making sure that somehow you get back to the center. Um, and, you know, and that, the, the challenge of knowing when you've got to go 
to one of the extremes. So it was that flexibility, that yeah. uh, adeptness at uh, that situation specific. Right, what you're saying you can't live you in can't, the. You want to be in the middle on average, but you can't live in the middle. You've got to sort exactly. of be bouncing it, it, back. Exactly, and it's easy to forget sometimes, and then you you know it's it's sometimes easier and hard, easy to forget or hard to get yourself back into a balanced position. Well, Tom, thank you very much for your time this morning. We, uh, we're looking forward to your book on uh, balanced yeah, leadership and all these great stories that you've shared with us. And uh, we look forward to also hearing more about your uh, success as you know, CEO of uh, Frick Consulting and yeah, thank the you. Uh, turnaround work that you're going to be doing with your clients. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Okay. It was great to be here. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining Michael Flock and his guests on the Capital Club Radio Show. For more information on future interviews, please visit us at flockfinance.com. This program is brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance, where clients are provided knowledge and insights to help them grow their business in complex and risky markets. Flock is more than a transaction.